And when I talk about these dead zones, yeah, what happens is the algae grows to such a remarkable extent that when it dies, it burns up so much oxygen, it sucks the life out of the water because basically nothing can survive. You're listening to Science for the People, where we explore science in the news or on the bookshelf and its links to history, culture, and policy. I'm Carolyn Wilkie. Today we're talking with Dan Egan. He's the author of the new book, The Devil's Element, Phosphorus and a World Out of Balance. Our conversation traces the history of this element, how it was first found by an alchemist who boiled and baked urine, how it wrought a miracle on crop fields, leading nations to plunder battlefields and ravage islands for their phosphorus supplies, and how people have unleashed a flood of this essential element into the world's waters, creating blooms of toxin-producing algae. Dan's book connects the dots between phosphorus's past and the health and economic concerns people are facing today. It's a call to pay attention as concerns build. Thanks so much for joining me today, Dan, to talk about your book, The Devil's Element. I was impressed by the sense of foreboding that built during the first section of the book. Um, So to start, why don't you introduce us to phosphorus? Why is it such a diabolical element? Well, it's, it's both diabolical and essential. Um, it's one of the three key nutrients that sustain modern agriculture, the other two being nitrogen and potassium. Phosphorus is a little different from those two because we're not really in danger of running out of the other two anytime soon. But um, we are blowing through our reserves, particularly here in North America, at an unsustainable pace. So, I mean, projections are always fuzzy, but it's been said that we could be dependent on other nations and for our chemical fertilizer in as few as three or four decades. But phosphorus is known as the devil's element because, well, the first of all, you got to kind of establish the nomenclature. And for purposes of the book, I just refer to everything as phosphorus. But when we do talk about phosphorus as a fertilizer, it's phosphate, which is a phosphorus atom bound with oxygen atoms. But phosphorus itself, elemental phosphorus, pure phosphorus, doesn't really exist in the natural world. It's got to be conjured, if you will. And the first time that happened was back in the 1600s by an alchemist who was working in Hamburg, Germany. He was in pursuit of the philosopher's stone, that mythical substance that they believed could transmute base metals like lead into gold. The idea at the time wasn't it wasn't that crazy. It was that all metals are in a constant state of evolution. And if they could find out the property that is causing this mutations, these mutations, they could speed it along. And so that's what the devil's element, or that's what that's what the philosopher's stone was. This alchemist was looking for it in the human waste stream, in urine specifically. And um, <clears throat> what he got after weeks of cooking and distilling and condensing and revaporizing and all sorts of hocus pocus were these glowing waxy nuggets um, that would explode if, if the room temperature got a bit above 80 degrees. So that's why they call it the devil's element. And it turned out to be a heck of a, a, a weapon. They were used in incendiary bombs and coincidentally and unfortunately, um, Hamburg, Phosphorus's birthplace, was burned to the ground by incendiary bombs when the Allies hit the city in late July of 1943 for seven nights in a row. And uh, there were a number of types of firebombs used, but phosphorus was key in the destruction of that city. You toyed with the idea of making some phosphorus yourself, uh, but you were dissuaded from doing so. Do you mind telling us about that? Sure. So... So when you go to a publisher and you say you want to write a book about phosphorus, <laughs> you, you better have a pretty good plan to engage an audience because it isn't on its face the sexiest t- topic in the world. It actually is fascinating. I wouldn't have spent three or four years working on this if it didn't grab me. Mm-hmm. But my job as a writer is to try to grab the reader. And so I thought I would start open this book with trying to replicate that alchemist's experiment in Hamburg back in the 1600s by cooking my own urine, maybe some borrowed urine as well, because it apparently takes a lot. And um, I don't know if you can even borrow urine. I think it's a gift for good. But but, uh, yeah, I had this notion that, you know, I've got a turkey fryer. I got a father-in-law who's a 
uh, chemical engineer who actually spent his career working on catalysts for uh, nitrogen production for fertilizer. And uh, he, he he's now deceased, but at the time he was living in South Carolina and they were going to come up for Thanksgiving. And he's like, well, I guess, I guess we're not going to fry a turkey this year. <laughs> I hope we're not. Uh, we could give it a go. I don't think it's going to go anywhere. <clears throat> and so I, I spoke to a couple other people and I, I guess I got the most comprehensive, firm and helpful answer from a guy at Johns Hopkins University who specializes in replicating alchemists' experiments. And he explained to me just very straightforwardly that uh, the heat that is required to do this is just insane. In fact, the uh, the earthenware that they used for these experiments is no longer available to us. You can you can make elemental phosphorus on an industrial scale, but if you're trying to do it in your garage, you'd have a heck of a time finding the heat and and the equipment to to pull it off. And the closer you do get to pulling it off, the more the closer you get to blowing yourself up because it's super volatile stuff. Hmm. And so he just said, don't. So I left it at that and was first forced to find a, a new opening for the book. Yeah. It's, it's kind of amazing that uh, the alchemist uh, a long time ago was able to, to make it. And yeah. 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 I mean, they, we kind of, a lot of people today just kind of dismiss that work as just, you know, wizardry and hocus pocus but they were serious technicians doing serious things at that time um i found it fascinating that's how i got interested in the whole topic actually when i was reading an account of of the first batch of phosphorus i was just kind of sucked down a rabbit hole what was it particularly that caught your attention just the idea that he was tinkering with urine in that fashion and that what he what he discovered had never been seen by anybody before. And and then once you trace the impact of this element up through those last 350 years, you realize that it is, you know, is essential. It's essential to everything. Isaac Asimov referred to it as life's bottleneck. Mm -hmm. It's phosphorus is found in every living cell on the planet, Mm -hmm. maybe the universe. Um, You know, in humans, it's in our bones and teeth. It's part of the ATP process. Mm-hmm. It's uh, in generating energy for cells. In, exactly. Yeah, and it's not. It's not just you know when people say, "Oh, it's in our DNA." Phosphorus is our DNA. It's it's the sugar phosphates are the backbone of the of the helix. Um. So so yeah, we we can't live without the stuff, but increasingly we can't live with it, at mm-hmm. least in the fashion that we've been using it for the last hundred years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think we'll talk a lot about that, um, how we got to where we are today soon. But maybe, you know, as an introduction to that, what problems have been caused by the flood of phosphorus in the environment now? Well, historically, naturally, phosphorus just slowly leached, it was released into the environment from igneous rocks that were present when earth was formed and so they just they they there was really a trickle of this stuff into the living world and that really kind of kept uh life on this planet and and we figured out how to turn that trickle into a gusher when we realized that certain types of sedimentary rocks which are the Mm -hmm. product of all of all this life that was sparked by the leaching igneous rocks it basically concentrated the phosphorus and and that phosphorus it never goes away it can be reused so you know in the natural world if you think about a forest or a pasture it's like how do trees and grass or grass keep growing year after year from the same patch of land and that's because of the circle of life mm-hmm. things grow they die they decay they replenish the soil they provide the nutrients needed for the next generation and and so it goes and on and on and on and on and we took that circle of life basically with this with the advent of chemical fertilizer and we cracked it and bent it into a straight line that runs from crops into our waters mm-hmm. and that wasn't a concern a huge concern early on because we weren't using and when i say early on i'm talking the very early 1900s we weren't using a ton of it and we hadn't been using it for decades so it wasn't accreting in soils where it can then wash off into our waters. 
But now, 100 years down the road, you've probably seen news accounts of all these toxic algae outbreaks happening from Florida to Wisconsin to Washington State and to basically every continent on the planet outside of Antarctica. In reading your book, I learned that it took a while, hundreds of years for phosphorus to become more than just a curiosity. How did researchers figure out what phosphorus could do for food production? Or maybe it wasn't researchers, but yeah, how did people figure out? (laughs) Well, I mean, they figured out that phosphorus was was essential uh, early on, but they just didn't have a name for it. Mm. And so we've been farming, you know, as a species for uh, 10,000 years. And, and early on, the early agriculturists must have just intuited that, you know, we got to be like a forest. We've got to replenish the land from which these trees are growing or from which our crops are growing. So they used anything they could find. And, and manure, animal manure was proved to be, very effective, as did human waste as well. And, you know, they didn't really discriminate or worry about what the root source of this material was. They just worried about keeping the fields productive. And so uh, this this led to quite a bit of tinkering. And, and the British were really at the forefront of this uh, in the early 1800s. We were still in the Little Ice Age, and famine was ever a threat. And crop productivity was always on people's minds. So they were really pushing the envelope as far as applying things to crops. And one of the early, real miraculous crude fertilizers they came upon was uh, bones. And early, early, uh, there's early accounts of like knife factories used bones for handles and the shavings from the, from those handles were just like a miracle grow product. And so they, they, they knew they wanted bones. They didn't know that they wanted bones because of the phosphorus in them. They just wanted bones. And so that propelled them to some pretty strange places, including... Yeah, please tell us about that. Yeah, the Battle of Waterloo in 1815, like 40,000 people fell in 10 hours, along with a bunch of horses. And that's a lot of bones. And so you would expect there to be some kind of mass burial site on the battlefield today. Um, or it would be considered sacred ground, but it's not. It's farmed just like it was before the battle. And uh, there are no bones because the British came back five, six, seven years later and stripped the battlefield of all its bones. And they built special bone-crushing mills and um, ground them into dust. You know, the deceased, their children, Mm. their, their enemies' children. And sprinkled it on crops across England to grow turnips and wheat, and it worked miraculously. So eventually, phosphorus hunters started looking elsewhere. How did they get to phosphorus-containing rocks? In a twisting way. And so, you know, chemistry was was advancing right along with many other scientific fields at the time in the early 1800s, including paleontology. And and I it, it's I've never seen hundred percent of how they made the jump from from just using material that was uh, great as a fertilizer to using material that they knew had phosphorus in them. But I think one of the early paths to making that connection happened around 1820 or so when this this girl, she literally was a girl. she was like 14 when she first started becoming famous. She was uh, uh, an amateur, fossil excavator on the English Channel near Lyme Regis. Her name was Mary Anning, who is allegedly uh, the source of that poem, She Sells Seashells by the Seashore. Uh, she did a lot more than scrounge for seashells. She she could excavate specimens that were like you know, these old dinosaurs that were like 40 or 50 feet long. And uh, one time, I can't believe, or I can't remember, remember if she was out with these guys or not, but she was there. All the learned men would seek her out when they were going fossil hunting because she knew where the stuff was and how to get it. Anyway, uh, famous chemist Justice von Liebig was scouring the coast with uh, William Buckland, a famous paleontologist at the time, and they came across uh, uh, some some remains, some fossilized dinosaur remains that appeared to have fossilized poop in their digestive tract. Hmm. And Liebig thought at the time, 
Well, if poop is such a potent nutrient, crop nutrient, I don't understand why fossilized poop shouldn't be so anyway. So he, he analyzed it chemically and found that it did have phosphorus. And, and that really helped them make the jump from we need once living things to apply on, on our fields to we need these three things, phosphorus, nitrogen, and potassium. And, and it turned out that certain rock deposits, these sedimentary rock deposits that I was talking about earlier, mm-hmm. um, are, are rich with, with phosphorus. And they're not, they're not everywhere. They're, they're rather rare. And they're not spread uniformly across the globe. They're concentrated in a relatively few number of places. And the United States was fortunate enough uh, to have deposits discovered in, in the Carolinas, in Florida, and in Idaho. Florida is the primary source, the main, the mother load, or it was, um, when the mining started in the 1880s and 1890s. But as I mentioned earlier, those reserves are uh, expected to play out in the coming decades, and then we'll be on the hunt for more crop nutrients, just as the British were in the 1800s. Hmm. Yeah. So there are a few places that you mention in your book. Uh, to start, maybe, can you tell us about Bonaba Island, and how did the search for phosphorus come to ravage those um, island-dwelling peoples? Okay, so so along with with bones and the obvious manures from humans and animals, um, bird poop was it was a huge uh, industry back in the 1850s, 60s, and 70s. It turned out there were these islands off of the coast of Peru on the west coast of South America that were basically mountains of phosphorus. And that's because uh, fish followed the Humboldt current up the nutrient-rich, phosphorus-rich Humboldt current up the west coast of South America, and birds feasted on those fish, and those birds needed a place to rest, to nest, to lay their eggs and hatch their young. And so that meant a lot of poop accreting on these islands. And because the area is so dry, it never washed away into the sea where it could recycle, be recycled into the circle of life that we've been talking about. It was just like a battery of, of, of thousands upon thousands of years of stored up phosphorus. So the British were the first to Western, the first Europeans to, to begin exploiting these islands for that material. But much of Europe followed along with the United States. And in the 1860s and 70s, people were convinced that there was so much bird poop on these islands that it was essentially inexhaustible. Well, it should be a surprise to nobody that um, they were wrong. And they were wrong sooner than anybody expected. So those, those bird poop islands were pretty well played out by the 1890s. And, and now the, the chemistry had been refined to the point where they knew that they could get it from other sources. They just had to find those sources. And through trial and error and prospecting and poking the ground, they found that there were uh, some islands that were just basically phosphorus, uh, built on phosphorus rock. And mm-hmm. they were out way out in, in the Pacific. And so basically Europe and North America just went went on the hunt for these islands. And when they found islands with these rocks, they would uh, basically not kick the natives off, the indigenous people off. They would push them aside and they would scrape those islands almost down to the waterline. And that's an enterprise that's been going on. I mean, this, this one island, Bonaba Island. Yeah. They, during world war two, the Japanese took it over and, they exiled or, or shipped off all the natives, and it was just a full-time mining operation even after World War II. And a few hundred have made their way back to what's left of the island today, but there's no real industry to speak mm-hmm. of. What is left of the island today? It, you know, I was going to go there, but a couple of things. COVID really made traveling difficult while I was writing this book, and that place is difficult to get to to begin with. There's a supply boat that comes out from one of the Fiji uh, Fijian islands, and 
drops off all the essentials like once every three months and it stays for a night. There's no airstrip or anything. It's a tiny island. So if you want to go to Bonaba, you've got to go for a night or you got to go for three months. <laughs> hmm. And that really wasn't that practical. But the descriptions that I've read, I mean, the last thing that wasn't ravaged was the golf course that that the uh, the British had built early on. And even that at the end was was stripped of its rocks. Hmm. So it's just, you know, apparently it's it's a very perilous place because the the whole island is pocked with these mining holes that, you know, plunge tens, if not a hundred feet to the in, in, into the center of the, the island and uh they're easy to fall into. So it's just it's just this rock this rock island that's just riddled with with, with mining activity hmm. and um yeah yeah and many countries have well it, it sounds like many countries have stopped uh looking to phosphorus from this island but there but um i was surprised yeah. to learn that the nutrient has been sprinkled across fields and even forests in australia and new zealand yeah yeah i mean they've stopped because the deposits are basically gone so now they're looking for it elsewhere but yeah new zealand and and australia you know there was a, a fertile, I believe he's a fertilizer historian. His name was Gregory Cushman. He, he talked about um, how these islands wouldn't be like replicas of, of Britain were it not for all the phosphorus applied to green them up. Hmm. And even today, New Zealand, yeah, they call it top dressing. It's, it's basically crop dusting. They they crop dust top dress their their countryside to green up the pastures and to even to even make trees grow. The problem with that is that it, you're going to run out of the phosphorus at some point. But it's also not just pure fertilizer phosphorus that's that's hitting the ground. It's fertilizer that also has, I believe, in New Zealand. There's concerns about cadmium and radium that that is accreting. In the soils, and there'll be a day of reckoning coming at some point. Oh. So, really, the story of phosphorus is is really just how it's just human nature. You know, it was it was slow releasing into the environment, and and at a pace that wasn't fast enough for our wants and needs. So, we figured out how to speed up the this this essential fertilizer, and we basically turned up the metabolism of Earth to magnificent effect when you consider. You know, crop production and the fact that when we started, you know, with this chemical fertilizer business in the early 1900s, we had maybe a billion people on the planet. And now we're at 8 billion on our way to 9 billion. And that would not have happened without us discovering the miraculous properties of phosphorus and then discovering the relatively scarce deposits of it. Mm. So um, that's the that's the positive effect. But the negative effect is that it doesn't Phosphorus doesn't stop fertilizing if it washes off a crop and makes its way into water. It'll make stuff grow in the water as well. And unfortunately, today, it's making these toxic algae uh, blooms explode. And it doesn't take a deep Google search to just see what a menace these things are, um, not just to property values and, and uh, you know, uh, beachgoers, but to, to animals. Pets are, are commonly mm. poisoned by this stuff, and it's it's poisonous to humans too. Um, it's been blamed for killing dozens of people down in Brazil when some of the toxin from one of these toxic blooms got into their water supply at a dialysis center. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. I expect we'll spend quite a bit of time talking about that in a minute, but I also wanted to ask you about one other area of the world with these phosphorus deposits. Um, maybe another reckoning that's in the making. Um, you write about how one country, Morocco, controls the majority of the world's phosphorus supply. So what is happening there uh, in the Western Sahara that few people pay attention to and is cause for quite a lot of concern? Well, yeah, Morocco and Western Sahara are believed to have 70 to 80 percent of the world's phosphorus reserves. And a lot of them are coming from a mine in Western Sahara, which is really a disputed territory. It was a Spanish colony until the 1970s, and uh, when when Spain pulled out, Morocco came down from the north because they believed it to be part of of their homeland, and 
essentially exiled tens of thousands of native people from the Western Sahara, nomadic people. And Mm -hmm. they were put in tents uh, right next door in Algeria. And the idea was they'd stay there for a few months until things calmed down and um, things never calmed down. And so there's still people living in these tent cities. They've grown up old and died there. It's Hmm. been going on for like 50 years. And one of the reasons uh, that Western Sahara is so important is because it's got this huge phosphorus mine. And um, the native people of the Sahara believe that that is their property and Morocco sees it differently. And so there's been kind of a low-grade war underway since the mid-1970s. It's flickered and flared, and it's it's been pretty dormant for the last 20 years or so, but it's it's starting to flare again. And uh, What do you mean by that? Like, what is happening? There's There's been guerrilla assaults on the uh, Moroccan troops who are seen as occupiers by, by the native people. And, and the mine and basically um, much of the eastern part of uh, Western Sahara is is sectioned off by Moroccan mines, millions and millions of landmines. And there's a berm, military berm, like a wall that's some, I think, 1,700 kilometers long or something. It's like the longest active military partition in the world. And so, yeah, I mean, people have fought over oil, and uh, it's not a big stretch to think that we may find ourselves in a world someday in the not-too-distant future where people are fighting over food. And by that, I mean phosphorus, which grows the food. Hmm. So how did phosphorus get into soap? Well, yeah, it, 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 it's a critical component of modern detergent. And I, before I started writing this, I started writing this book, I thought of soap and detergent as synonymous but they're really very different. I mean, soap, soap's been used for thousands of years and detergent, which is just basically a, a chemical concoction built to do the same thing, has only been around since the 1950s or so. And it was only necessary once World War II ended and all, all of our um, industrial might turned from making weapons to making things like washing machines. And those washing machines, miraculous as they were, at getting clothes clean weren't as good as a pair of hands willing to do some hard scrubbing. So they wanted a more effective form of soap. So they basically built one. And one of the key components in it was phosphorus. And it it just was part of the process. Um, Essentially, it was a water softener because um, traditional soap would would allow these buildups of of, uh, things like – uh, calcium and uh, I think it's magnesium, just this crust that we, would would just plague these washing machines. So this kept phosphorus kept things flowing smoothly, but the problem was um, that stuff was being unleashed on the environment at a scale that nobody had ever, the earth had never experienced. And so all of a sudden we started getting all these algae blooms to the point where Lake Erie was declared America's Dead Sea in the 1960s because of all the phosphorus, because of all the algae blooms that phosphorus was spawning. So at the time, people didn't know exactly what the source of, of, of these blooms were. And uh, the phosphorus, the detergent industry was adamant that it wasn't their product, that it wasn't phosphorus. They argued that it could be nitrogen or carbon or something else. So some very enterprising scientists up in Canada convinced the government in western to give them a bunch of lakes basically in northwestern ontario to tinker with to treat like oversized um test tubes if you will Mm -hmm. and so one of their more famous experiments was they took this peanut shaped lake and uh cut it in half with a polyurethane curtain and this is simplifying it but basically one side got phosphorus and one side got nitrogen and they'd already ruled out carbon through other tests, okay. other experiments. And and the side that got phosphorus within a couple of weeks turned green as a golf course. And the side that didn't, that had the nitrogen, the extra nitrogen added, remained as deep and blue as you'd expect of a Canadian lake. So that was 
picture proof um, that that phosphorus was what was causing all these algae troubles in the 1960s and 70s. And so we got the Clean Water Act uh, out of this, and and Lake Erie got put on a phosphorus diet. And when I talk about these dead zones, w- w- yeah, what happens is the algae grows to such a remarkable extent that when it dies, it burns up so much oxygen, it sucks the life out of the water because basically nothing can survive. And so they wanted to stop this from happening, obviously. And so I don't remember the exact numbers, but I think they cut the load of phosphorus going into the lake by about 50%. And that was done through wastewater treatment plant upgrades and through pulling phosphorus from, from detergent formulas. This wasn't just a problem in the U.S. either, right? This was a problem around the world, in Europe, other places that were using detergents. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We, being North America, referring to North Americans, we're the ones who, who solved it. And and the turnaround was miraculous. You know, I think Dr. Seuss wrote the Lorax in 1972. And in it, he makes fun of Lake Erie being such a mess. And by the mid-80s, the lake's recovery had been so dramatic that some researchers at Ohio State University wrote a good doctor and said, hey, this isn't fair anymore. And he agreed, and he pulled it from the Lorax. And if you go to the bookstore today, um, you will not find any mention of Lake Erie in the Lorax. Uh, And Dr. Seuss is is since deceased, but if he were alive today, he'd probably put it back because Lake Erie is, again, a soupy mess. This time, the problem isn't so much. It isn't phosphorus and detergent. It's phosphorus coming off of farm fields. Right. So why did agriculture get a pass when the 1972 Clean Water Act was passed? Well, at the time, they didn't know the extent. And it was different. Farming was conducted on a different scale back then. Mm. And the belief was that there was so much of the stuff of the phosphorus coming from industrial excrements and wastewater treatment plant discharges that um, if they solved that problem, they'd essentially solve the problem. It was also... A question of like with these in regulatory parlance, it's called point source polluters. Those are factories and and non-point source, which is just diffuse pollution uh, off the landscape, which is agriculture. And the idea was, look, we can essentially plug or cap a smokestack or a pipe or at least scrub what's coming out of those tubes. Uh, You can't really squeegee a farm field. So... So agriculture largely got a pass, and it was okay 50 years ago, but today, you know, and it's dramatic in certain areas, particularly in the western basin of Lake Erie, the scope of and scale of agriculture has gotten so huge that there's just so much manure being produced in these watersheds that eventually makes its way into the lake. Manure, as we were talking earlier, is just a miraculous fertilizer, but when you have a farm of six, seven, eight thousand head of cattle, they're producing, you know, it's a dairy. They're not just producing milk every day. <laughs> they're producing a lot of waste and it needs to go somewhere. And so it's it's spread on fields ostensibly as a fertilizer, but often it's spread whether those fields need that or not. And if it doesn't get taken up like a crop, it by a crop, it does what everything else does and that it's, it flows downhill and in the case of Western Ohio, that's that's Lake Erie, and today those toxic or those algae blooms are are much more likely to be toxic for a number of reasons. A big one is zebra mussels and quagga mussels have invaded the lake, and many lakes lakes are all across the continent. And these little brainless filter feeders are smart enough to eat everything in a water column, but tax, toxic algae. So it really selects mm-hmm. for this stuff. So when you get a, an algae bloom now, it's much more likely to be of the toxic sort. And as I said earlier, this isn't just a like a, a, a problem of aesthetics, of unsightly and smelly stuff. It's, it's dangerous. It, it shut the uh, drinking water, shut down the drinking water supply in Toledo in 2014 for a number of days because a plume of the toxin got into the water treatment plant and into the pipes of of the mm-hmm. water distribution system, they didn't technically shut down the, the system, but they ordered people not to drink it because uh, it just wasn't safe. Even if you boiled that water, all you do is concentrate the toxins. So mm-hmm. you imagine a city of a half a million people, they're babies. They had to, the National Guard was bringing in pallets of baby formula. 
tankers of, of fresh water. Yeah, I remember hearing about that in the news. Um, and of course, the consequences aren't just happening um, in Lake Erie and lakes in the Midwest, but they're cascading south. Uh, can you talk about how the consequences of phosphorus use on fields have, have ended up um, in the Gulf and in other areas in the southeast? Sure. Yeah. You know, the, the this dead zone that I've been talking about on Lake Erie, it, it's the better known one is the Gulf dead zone, which, you know, happens at the mouth of the Mississippi every year. That's largely because it's salt water. That's largely driven by one of the other key nutrients, nitrogen. But um, but things are changing. You know, in 2019, and I think it straddled the years 2018 and 19, or maybe it was 19 and 20, but we had the wettest 12 months on record in the Mississippi River Basin, which sprawls across 40% of the continental United States. So that meant a lot of water coming down the Mississippi. It came down at such a volume that once it hit the Gulf, it drifted east along the Mississippi coast and, and basically turned that coast, the nearshore area, into fresh water. But there wasn't just water flowing in, into that nearshore area. It was water laden with phosphorus. So all of a sudden, they had these freshwater toxic algae blooms along their beaches that nobody expected could happen. And they shut the first beach at the end of June, and I think by July 4th or soon thereafter, every beach on the Mississippi coast, some 40 miles of coastline, was closed to swimming. And I don't know if you've been to Mississippi uh, in, in July or August recently, but you you want to swim. It's hot mm. <laughs> and muggy. And mm -hmm. this had a, a dramatic impact on businesses down there. I talked to a guy in 2019 who had purchased a bunch of jet skis for a rental business and he couldn't rent them to anybody. So he was taking them up to Georgia to sell them because he had big loans to pay off. And he really kind of succinctly hit the nail on the head um, when he said to me, you know, why am I being regulated out of business? Why aren't the farmers who are causing the problem being better regulated? And the answer to that is a good question. So I think I was also really struck by that 2019 incident in Mississippi. Um, you mentioned the idea of Jubilee, um, that there's a bumper crop of fish that is available that it, and that had happened a couple of years prior. Um, but then all of a sudden, all this fish was showing up in 2019 and it was not a good idea to eat it. Yeah, yeah. There's a natural phenomenon down there. It's called a jubilee when naturally low oxygen water. It just happens for various reasons. It doesn't take human meddling to create low oxygen water, but it, it comes into shore and it, it just basically herds all the sea life with it and you get fish flopping out of the water. So in 2019, they thought they had, and, and when that happens, like the government regulators, they just say, you know, all fishing limits, everything are, are, are pulled. Just go down to the water, and if it's alive and looking healthy, grab it. And you can literally grab it. <laughs> um, so in 2019, some fish started flopping out of the water, and they thought, oh, it's another jubilee. But no, they were flopping out of the water because this toxic algae had moved in, and um, those fish were not safe to eat. Right. Another place that you mentioned in terms of the current consequences that people are facing because of phosphorus overload is Lake Okeechobee in Florida. How did that lake um, change over the years and why? And how does it represent people's propensity to unleash something that they can't control? And then... Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, so Lake Okeechobee was naturally just like in this big puddle. And, you know, it would uh, wax and wane. And when it got high over its natural two eye on its natural banks, it would spill into the Everglades. It was basically the source of water for the river of grass. And uh, humans, being humans, couldn't really leave that lake alone. They saw the those predictable, regular overflows as a nuisance. So they basically corralled the lake behind a, a man-made dike. And unfortunately, that dike, the early attempts to do this weren't very sophisticated. And that dike collapsed twice in the 1920s and killed thousands of people in flood water. Uh, so, so the dike got bigger and stouter and, and today it's, I think it's some 30 feet high or something like that. Uh, and it's in the heart of, of Florida, uh, farming country. 
And so lots of nutrients make their way into that lake. And it's even with that dike surrounding it, it's still a pretty shallow body of water and it's warm and it's often flat. So it makes it a perfect incubator for uh, toxic algae blooms. And normally those blooms would just be contained to that lake and it wouldn't be a good thing, but it would be localized. But because that lake is contained by uh, this, this dike, the dike has a history of, of leaking. And the fear today is that it'll collapse again like it did 100 years ago. But now you're talking tens of thousands of people who could die. So the Army Corps, which manages the lake, has a practice of regularly releasing water down canals uh, and into rivers that flow both to the Atlantic mm-hmm. coast near Stewart, Florida, and to the Gulf Coast near Fort uh, Myers. And so the water coming down that river, just like down the Mississippi, it's not really water. It's just this toxic stew. And so you're getting these tony coastal communities um, dealing with this problem. And it's turning, you know, a lot of people who normally wouldn't worry about what many think of as abstract environmental issues, it's turning them into environmentalists because they're worried about, you know, their their property values, their business, and, and their health. I mean, there's people getting sick down there. When I was there, I think it was in 2019 or 2020, uh, one of the regional health networks start, put out a posting saying you know, anybody visiting their clinics, if they came in and, with some kind of uh, GI distress to, uh, to, make, or to, to find out if they'd been swimming, because that seemed to be the common denominator. And so I went to a, this meeting with, with all these upset local people on the Atlantic coast of Florida, and some of them were really sick. I talked to one guy who said he had he had, he had a six thousand square foot office on one of the canals, in, I think it was in Stewart, Florida, uh, that he had to abandon at that point. I don't think he left it permanently, but it was it, the the fumes were coming off the canals uh, to such an extent that he said he had not eaten anything but tums for the last three days. And then I talked oh, to wow. another guy who had lost like thirty pounds. Um, so, yeah, it, it can wreak habit on the GI tract. It's also uh, suspected uh, of causing some neurological or neurodegenerative diseases. Now, this is – I was a little squeamish writing about this because there hasn't been a, any causation, but they have found correlation in, like, in lakes up in New England and New Hampshire specifically – where people living within the or within an X amount of miles of these um, algae-plagued lakes had a spike in ALS, and so the, people are working on that. I mean, it's that's such a complicated disease. I can't say, oh, this stuff causes <laughs> causes Lou Gehrig's disease, but but there's some scary data coming in, and it is mm-hmm. worth keeping an eye on. And even if you take that out of the equation. It's still a liver toxin, and it, you know it's it's really dangerous for pets, and it's increasingly dangerous for humans as more and more humans are exposed to the stuff as it becomes common in more and more lakes. And you don't have to swim in the water, drink the water, to be impacted by it. It it, it uh, aerosolizes, so just the fumes coming off the water can be dangerous. I remember when I was first encountering this as a journalist. I was doing all this research on the computer in an apartment uh, along shore of Lake Michigan in Milwaukee. And between me and that shore was uh, a lagoon. And that lagoon, which wasn't far, I mean, I had the windows open. It was probably 300 yards from it. Mm-hmm. It was supposed to host a um, some kind of national uh, uh, water ski contest. And uh, they they called it off because the water was too poisonous. And so I remember the day I shut my window and started using air conditioning. And that was kind of mm-hmm. sad. Yeah. Yeah. So these, yeah, the consequences of these toxins from algae are being felt far and wide. Um, what are some ways that societies could restore the phosphorus cycle to avert these toxic algal blooms and dying lakes? Well, first is just philosophically to recognize that this isn't stuff that you use once and you're done with it. I mean, it's meant to be used over and over. So then you start looking at the low-hanging fruit. And I, I think 
One is uh, these manure lagoons on these supersized farms. You know that that's a trove of if if the if the you know British in the 1800s would see these these ponds full of animal waste, they wouldn't think yuck. They think yum. <laughs> that's mm. that's food. And and we, while we do reuse a fair amount of it on on fields, you know, a lot of it just washes into the water. And you know, one of the problems is a rule of thumb for farmers is if you have to truck it more than ten miles from from where it's produced from your barns, your feedlots, it's gonna it's gonna um, it's gonna cost you dearly. So I think we need to rethink this exemption for for agriculture. And maybe maybe start treating this this these super farms as the point source polluters that that industries are, and and that would cost money. But it's we're already paying the price for the existing system um, in the form of closed beaches and threatened drinking water supplies. And so, you know, if we were to increase regulations. And maybe require treatment so the stuff can be pelletized or put in some kind of a form where it's easily shipped. Then you have a lot more options. And you're also, so you're going to do two things. You're going to save our dwindling rock reserves or, or preserve them to an extent. And you're also going to protect the water. So that's one thing. And another thing is to think about what we're growing and why. 40% of the corn grown in the U.S. now is, is used for ethanol, which is a, you know, supposed to be a, a very green renewable fuel but because of the energy it takes to plant it and, and harvest it and process it it really is it is not a net environmental winner by most accounts other than those who benefit from the industry pretty handsomely so that seems to me to be an obvious place to start and we're never going to capture all the phosphorus molecules nor would we want to i mean Waters need the stuff. They're just getting too right. much. They're just getting too much of it right now. What from your reporting did you find the most surprising or interesting? Just the how much ignorance there is around this just essential element. You know, it, it's it's got a PR problem. I think it's just when you hear the word phosphorus, you you think you don't really want to hear anything more about it. But it's so integral, not just to to our bodies, but to our society. I mean, it's the linchpin, as Isaac Asimov called it, life's bottleneck, and and it's not it's not a it's not bottlenecked anymore. It's it's a full on gusher, and that's like I said, that's been great for a hundred years, but we can't keep going like this for a couple for a hundred years or a couple hundred, let alone a couple hundred years. There's just not the the phosphorus, at least in North America, and the water just can't handle it. So, I guess what surprised me is just how it touches just almost everything you think about when you think about life on Earth. It literally does touch everything. It is in everything in life on Earth. And it's it's really, you know, it it's there's just this paradox where it's just so precious, but we're also just using it so recklessly that we're not only in danger of running out of it, we're in danger of poisoning our waters. And I don't want to disparage or denigrate farmers at all because you need food. <laughs> But just as much as you need food, you need safe water. And you did talk with some farmers who were very concerned about what's going on with phosphorus sure. yeah, and, and working on their own farms. Too. Yeah, the farmers the farmers are just working in the system that they've inherited. Now, they may have helped shape the system, too, but you can't fault them for just playing by the rules that exist. It's just maybe those rules aren't working as well as people thought they were. Clearly, they're not, or you wouldn't have these, you know, beach closures for weeks, if not months on end from Florida you know, up in Lake Erie, the Mommy Bay State Park is a gorgeous beach. But you go there in summer and you're more likely to see do not swim signs than you are to see lifeguards and kids running around with zinc oxide on their noses. We're just abandoned. And that's a high mm. price that we're paying. It's just, it's not on a ledger. It's not reflected, you know, directly in any kind of economic analysis. Uh, but it's real. Yeah. Have you been continuing to follow uh, the story of phosphorus that's unfolding in many places since the end of writing your book? And if so, what what have you seen? No, not really. I'm just kind of taking a break from it. Although I do have a short sure. feed, and you know, you just you just keep seeing 
once you start, once you get attuned to this, you you just see that, I mean, there's just lakes everywhere. I mean, I was in Central Park two summers ago and there was a sign, you know, toxic blue-green algae, stay out of, you know, it was going to go into a pond in Central Park, but just as extra precautions, stay out. And then I was uh, down in Brooklyn at Prospect Park and then the same thing. And, you know, they're everywhere. And, you know, people just haven't connected the dots. And that's really the purpose of this book is to mm. connect the dots, to paint a picture, sketch a picture that, you know, is, is something that's it's not a disaster. It's not a catastrophe, but it's it's a big concern and it's getting bigger by the year. And the sooner we start to try to deal with it, the better chance we have of finding an outcome that's going to keep farmers happy and their lands productive and protect our waters and their public health. Well, thank you so much, Dan, for sharing what you've learned and reporting about phosphorus. Thanks for having me. Dan Egan's book, The Devil's Element, Phosphorus and a World Out of Balance, is available wherever you get your books. We've linked to one option at scienceforthepeople.ca. There you'll find links to our show on Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes, where you can listen to past episodes, subscribe, or leave a review. If you like what you're hearing, please consider supporting the show by donating through our Patreon page. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. Thank you.